0: I've realised that happiness is a skill. It's a skill that we can practise, we can develop, we can work on it if we know what to work on. The greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your mind. Every time you go through some, what I call social friction, someone does something that bothers you, reframe it. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode
1: of the podcast in partnership with Smartcast, Arabian Business and Najahi Events, more about them later. Today's guest, well, actually there's two because I've got a co-host with me as well. Lisa Johnson, my good buddy.
2: Hi. He's here with us today
1: (laughs) and she's going to be helping me interview our next guest. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee is one of the UK's most influential medical doctors. Having practiced general medicine for over 20 years, Dr. Rongan is known for his ability to simplify complex health advice and find the root cause of health problems. He's on a mission to change the way medicine is practiced for years to come. In fact, he wants to help a hundred million people around the world live better lives. He's the host of the groundbreaking BBC One show Doctor in the House. He has one of the UK and Europe's most downloaded podcasts, Feel Better, Live More. And as an author of five best-selling health books, he's just released his latest book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. 10 Simple Ways to Feel Great Every Day. I cannot wait to speak to him. Let's get on with this. Cue the music. Food security is a problem. Now I talk about this quite frequently, but we see by 2080, with the population expanding, there's not gonna be enough food being produced. So we have to solve it. And at the forefront of that, one of our sponsors, Smartcast, are dealing with this firsthand. They're taking agritech and smart food tech, bringing solutions so that we don't have to worry about the future of our children and where their food is gonna come from. Go check them out at Smartcast Tech, S-M-A-R-T-K-A-S. T-E-C-H, on Instagram, follow their story, learn more about what they do. It's important, so pay attention. Partnering with Arabian Business has been really important for this podcast. If you haven't heard of Arabian Business, they're the leading business publication in the Middle East. And if you like learning about what's going on in the world, understanding what's happening with the economy, understanding politically what's going on, then this is a place to go. And for you guys, my audience, they've offered a 25% discount. If you go to the link below and you type in ABEXEC, A-B-E-X-E-C, you will get a 25% discount on your subscription with them. So go and do that now, be up to date, know what's going on in the world so that you're better informed about the future. Najahi Events have been sponsoring this podcast since the beginning. I love Alpha Mustafa and what she's done and the support she's given me over the years. You know, so many of us need to be lifted, we need inspiration, motivation, we need education about what we can do to create better lives for ourselves, and that's exactly what Najahi events do. So go check them out, N-A-J-A-H-I events. You'll see them on Instagram, follow them, learn about what they're doing, because again, if you want to learn new skills, you want to have a side hustle that becomes a new business, or you want people like Tony Robbins, Nick Vujicic, and the list goes on of celebrities that can come and inspire you, they are the people to follow. Right, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I've got a million questions I wanna ask you today. But first of all, it's first thing in the morning as we do this interview, morning routines. Morning routines, yeah, uh, big one for me. Because I've, I've got some issues with this, all right? Because people constantly on social media are saying, why do you get up at that time of day? Why do you do things the way you do? Why don't you stay in bed for an extra couple of hours? You know, you don't need to get up early and have that structure, but I do. If I don't have that, I feel almost, almost a little bit lost with my day. Yeah.
2: Well, you talk about taking away choice, don't you, in the book? And I think it's something to do with that.
0: For me, morning routines are huge in terms of me being able to show up as the best version of myself. Whether that's like at work as a doctor, with my uh, wife, with my kids, with my friends. Like I know I'm a better person when I've had a bit of time to myself each morning. Now, morning routines, I think, are almost. For some people, they've becoming a bit of a cliche that, you know, get up early, do this before you start the day. I think they work for loads of people. I've seen it with my patients that they work really, really well, even a five-minute morning routine. But I would also say that, you know what, if mornings aren't the right time for you, for whatever reason, okay, what we're talking about, what I'm talking about is, is there a period of your day where you consistently give time to yourself to kind of nourish yourself? And I think without that, I think it's very, very hard these days to kind of be who you want to be in the world, you know, because there's so much information now. We're always consuming information, right? You know, Instagram, email, the news, and, and even good information, right? If all we're ever doing is taking in inputs from outside, we never have any chance to actually get in touch with how we're really feeling. So. For me, how I start my day is with a morning routine, and I call it the three M's, um, mindfulness, uh, movement and mindset, and I think that provides a great structure for people if they're thinking about, you know, I'd kind of like to do a morning routine, I don't really know what to do. I think if you cover these three bases, it's a pretty complete morning routine. Now, you don't have to, even just one of those M's I think will be beneficial and arguably transformative for many people. But for me, how does it how does it roll? Well, I'm married. I've got two young kids. So I have realized for many years uh, since my kids were born and they get up early, I realize that if I get up before my kids and have time to myself, I'm just a much better person. I'm calmer. I'm more content and I'm more productive at work. So I get up at five, right? I go to bed at nine, which is early. I get up at five and... I now will probably have 30-40 minutes of a morning routine, that was really important to me. Now I will say with some of my patients, I've persuaded them to do a five-minute morning routine and even that has had benefits. So I've structured my life around so I can do 40 minutes. So the first time is mindfulness, right? So I get up, first thing I do, I go into my living room in my pyjamas and I will do some form of meditation or mindfulness, right? I play around with a few different things, I'm currently doing this kind of breath hold technique that I've learnt. that for about 10 minutes, right? Then I go into my kitchen and I like to drink coffee, right? And I'm very precise with how I make my coffee. So I weigh out 15 grams of coffee. I pour in 250 mils of water. But what's, you know, it's not about how much coffee I drink. The point is it brews for five minutes every morning, right? So in those five minutes, I don't go on Instagram. I don't go on email. I don't uh, look at the news. I have a workout in my kitchen in my pyjamas, right? So that could be a bodyweight workout, there's a dumbbell or a kettlebell kicking around. Anything that I feel like, I just pick it up, do whatever, right? And then five minutes later, I'm I workout over and I'm rewarded with a hot cup of coffee. And then I move on to the. So that was the second M, movement. The third M is mindset. So I've realised that actually, if you do something positive first thing in the morning, and you sort of infuse your mind with positive thoughts, that tends to have a carryover effect, not just for the rest of the morning, but often for the rest of the day. So, what I do is I will, with my coffee, I'll, you know, I'll read something. I've got four or five books kicking around in my living room or a kitchen, and it's always like an uplifting book that makes me think, that makes me reflect. That's it, right? It's not actually that complicated, and... Because I do the same thing every morning, speaking to what you're saying, Lisa, and there is a whole chapter in, in my new book about eliminating choice, I don't have to think every morning, oh, you know, what am I gonna do for my morning routine? Am I gonna do meditation, breath work? What workout am I gonna do? Is it gonna be hits, Pilates, yoga, i am gonna go for a walk? All these things are paralyzing for people, right? So I recommend to people at the start, do the same thing every day. So many of my patients, They get get paralyzed with choice, you know, they're they're on Instagram seeing this influencer talking about yoga, this one about Pilates, this one about running. It's like, oh, I want to do it all. I get that because I used to be that sort of person. Oh, I want to do a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of that. Actually, eliminate choice, choose what you're going to do and do it. And the reason, I think one of the key reasons that that works for me is because I have um, sister systematised it basically. Every morning, I don't have to think I know what I'm doing. And you know, that, 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 that coffee routine around my workout, many people struggle to find time to move their bodies. Like, oh, you know, I really want to, but I can't. And, and I'm really passionate about this. We as humans don't follow the rules of behaviour change. There are rules out there that science has shown time and time again that work. And, there's, you know, in my, in my third book a few years ago, I wrote out the six rules that I think hold true for us. But the two most important ones are, number one, make it easy, right? And number two, stick your new behaviour onto an existing habit. That's what I do with that workout, that five-minute workout. I made it easy. Five minutes means I can never say, oh, I don't have time for this, right? No, you know, I don't have time today. I've always got five minutes. And the second part of that is, I've stuck it onto something that I'm already doing, right? I don't need my PA to phone me at 20 past five in the morning, say, hey, Rangan, can I just remind you to have your black coffee this morning? Mm. No, no, I'm gonna do it. I know that sounds a bit silly, but it's really important because um, a habit is something that we are automatically doing without any conscious thoughts, right? Mm. So when you stick on a new behavior onto an existing habit, you vastly increase the likelihood that you're gonna be able to do it. Right, so I've rarely missed a workout, a five minute workout, probably in about three years, and it's not because I've got more motivation than anyone anyone else, it really isn't. It's because I, I know the rules of behavior change and I've applied them to human behavior. And you know this really works so when people, through the lens of business, right, business know this, Amazon, Right? Uh, I've said this a couple of times before, Amazon, when they moved to one-click ordering a few years ago, estimates say their profits went up by $300 million a year right? just from that one change. Right? They've made it easy. Before you had to take four or five steps. Every step you have to take before you place that order is a reason to pull out. Right? You make it so easy now, before you blink, something's coming the, that, that day. Right? YouTube, Netflix, they do the same thing. One video goes into the next video. It's not out of the goodness of their hearts, right? It's because they know they make it easy. Before you know that it's, you know, midnight, and uh, you should go to bed because you need to be up at six thirty. You, you've got you're you into the next bit of the of the box set, and you can't resist. So I'm saying business uses the rules of human behavior to get us to actually do more, and stay, and you know, and spend more, and be on their platforms more, and they should. I'm I'm not criticizing business for doing that. I understand yeah, it. I'm just saying when it comes to human behaviour, we throw those rules out the window and we, ha- we think we have to make it hard. Then I've got to meditate for 20 minutes, I have to have a 40 minute workout. Hey, if you've got time for that stuff, great. But what's great about making it super, super simple is that the reason why number, number one rule make it easy is so important because if you don't make it easy, you are overly relying on motivation.
1: And motivation always runs out. It's interesting you say this. I've got a real living example right now this minute. I train in the gym at 5am every day. And I go to my gym, it's 10 minutes up the road. I go to the gym, my trainer's ready to go at 5 o'clock. Ramadan came and the gym said, we're only opening at 6 for Ramadan. Mm. And so I said to the trainers, what are we going to do? He's like, well, you know what, I've got a client at 6, so I can't train you at 5. So, you know, we're going to have to wait until after Ramadan. And I was like, what? (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean? It's routine. You, can, you can't you change. He said, well, the gym's closed. What do you want me to do? I'm like, I don't know. We could do something, go for a run, go for a bike ride together, you know. I don't know, what could we do? And he's like, you know, but if I, if I go for a run with you, I'll get hot and sweaty and then I might be late for my, my client at six and you know, I wouldn't do that to you. So you know what, uh, you know, we'll just have to, you know, for this month. But don't worry, as soon as Ramadan's over. So I was like, right. Okay, so I kind of of like, tail between my legs as I left the gym that day, thinking what I was going to do. I was like, right, that's it. And the, exactly as to what you said. Right, I'll do a bike ride, okay, on Monday. Tuesday, I'll do a run. Uh, Wednesday, I'll do a bike ride. Thursday, I'll do a run. I'll go hiking on Saturday. And so what I'll do is, is I'll do a workout at home, okay, on Friday morning. So that, that's what I'll do.
2: Did you do
1: it? Terrible. Absolutely not, okay. started with great great intentions the first day. Okay. But it it, it was a struggle because I had to think about, you know, the alarm went off and usually I never touch my phone when the alarm goes off. I literally get up, straight into the shower, gym gear on, ready to go. But I woke up and I'm like, oh, I better check my emails. And I was caught into this 15 minute period of just literally looking at social media and my emails for 15 minutes. And then I was like, oh, 15 minutes, what have you just done? And then I'd have a shower and I'd go and do something. But It was a struggle, not with the same intensity, not with the same calorie burn, you know? And I know for sure, you know, I went hiking the other day and I hadn't been hiking for a while, and I couldn't keep up. You know, the gang were going off ahead of me and I couldn't, and I'm usually the gazelle that's at the front.
2: But that is what's brilliant about habit stacking, because I have no motivation for things. I have very little willpower, as you know. But if I habit stack, I can do it one thing at a time. So for instance, if I want to tell myself I'm going to listen to a TEDx talk a day, which I did a while back, so it was like, well, how am I going to make sure I do it? Because I could say I'm going to do it, but then I'll get up and I won't do yeah, it. Yeah. And so what I started to do is go, when I brush my teeth, I put on a TEDx talk. And so it habit stacked it. And then it automatically, without me even thinking about it, I'd be getting up, TEDx talk, pick up my toothbrush, and it would be a thing. And then I, I added something into it. And so my morning routine came from just one tiny yeah. thing at a time. Because if I tried to do everything, I wouldn't yeah. do it.
0: Yeah, you, and that's exactly it. And... and The whole motivation piece, Mm. I think, is so important. This is basically the classic reason why in January, right? New year, new you. Everyone's like, right, this year, it's going to be different. (laughs) You know, this year, I'm I'm, going to be working out. I'm going to do spinning four times a week. You know, I'm going to make my life happen this year. Right, great. First week in January, yeah, you go spinning four times a week. Second week of January, yeah, you go again. Third week, oh, man, work was... That was a tough day, not sure I could be bothered going to the gym. You know, basically, this speaks to motivation, right? In the science, it's called the motivation wave. Motivation comes up, motivation comes down. The reason why if you make it easy, you are going to do it, right, is because you're not relying on motivation, right? Basically on that day where you're knackered and you're stressed out and you don't feel you have time, if it's easy to do, you will still do it. Now, just to be really clear, I'm not saying you always have to keep it low. I'm saying make that, the, um, make that the kind of minimum. So some days, you know, I'll have a bit of extra time at the end of the five minute work. I feel great. You don't want to do another five, 10 minutes. But that's not the expectation I have of myself. Because if suddenly I creep up, I have to do 15 minutes a day, right? Then suddenly on that day where I don't have it, I won't do it and then before you know it it's a habit or a behavior that you used to do and, and i've i've had patients before where i've made deals with them they i feel meditation might might help them for example and they say yeah doctor, but i don't really have time i i remember one patient in particular i said okay how much time do you have could you do 10 minutes no nah, no way I said, okay could you do five minutes uh, i don't know maybe i said what about one minute yeah i could definitely do one minute i said okay great well, let's start with one minute but you've got to commit to see every day at the same time. What time are you going to do it? Straight after you wake up? Great. So she started to do it. And what was, what's incredible when you start small is that that one minute, she, she could do it every day. She could never make the I don't have one minute here. Yeah. After two weeks, she'd increased it by herself to five minutes. After a few weeks, she's doing 10 minutes a day. Not because I told her to, mm. but because she wanted to. And that's always, you know, I know as a doctor, no one... Is going to do in the long term what you tell them to do, right? No way. People don't want to be told what to do. It's got to come from within. So I just found it. I'm not saying don't have a 40-minute workout at the gym. Uh, I sometimes go to the gym or I'll, I'll go for long runs. But they're on top of I, I see my morning routine say like toothbrushing for my mind uh, and my body, right? I, you know, we don't miss a day of toothbrushing. We do two minutes in the morning, two minutes in the night. We weren't doing that when we were three years old. We had to be reminded. It's now a habit. I hope it's a habit for all three of us, right? <laughs> it's a habit because it's easy and we do it at the same time every day, right? That's why we go into the bathroom, the toothbrush is there, toothpaste is there. It's so easy. We just do it, pick it up and do it. So now it's a routine and I'm trying to say to people, this morning routine piece, a little bit of time on your, uh, on your, on your mind, a little bit of time for movement, a little bit of time on mindfulness. Actually, very quickly, that can also become a routine as well. Let me,
1: let me go back in time because I'm really interested in your understanding of, of, of winning and your mindset around winning. And I know you've spoken about you know, you, you play pool or snooker or something. Yeah. Okay. And you know, you can't bear losing. Couldn't. Couldn't bear losing. And that leans into your past with always expecting you to do your best when yeah. you were a kid. There are there are p- people that are sometimes known as bad losers, okay. They, they don't like Lewis Hamilton is a famous bad loser, for yeah. example. Doesn't like to lose, but for you, losing was bad, but winning didn't bring the joy.
2: Yeah,
1: and that's what fascinates me. Can you talk about that for a bit?
0: Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of this in much of my life. It was probably in the last five or six years that I'd been aware of why I behave in certain ways in certain situations. Uh, It's all really started since my dad died just over nine years ago. That was the big moment for me where instead of looking outside for answers, I feel like I I almost turned that ship around and started to go inwards and ask myself the big kind of existential questions. Who am I? Whose life am I leading? Is it my life? Is it someone else's life? Uh, Why do I behave in certain ways? Why do certain things emotionally trigger me and other things don't? Because I think that ultimately is the journey to inner contentment and happiness. It's not out there. It's trying to figure out what's going on inside. And so I realized that, you know, I've been very competitive my whole life. In fact, if you ask my mum, she she loves telling the story to people that when I was like six or seven, if I lost at Ludo, I just, apparently, I don't remember this, apparently I just throw the board up and walk out. Right, And, and, you know, it sounds like a fun family story that your mum embarrasses you with. But actually, it goes a lot deeper than that, right? At its core, where has this come from? My parents were immigrants to the UK in 1960s and 1970s, right? Come here in search of a better life. The immigrant mentality, certainly I can speak for Indian families, right? I can't speak for everyone, is very much you prioritise academic success Mm -hmm. because... You know, certainly my my parents and a lot of uh, other families from an Indian background faced a lot of discrimination back then. There were a lot of ceilings that they couldn't progress through. And they accepted it. They'd gone on with it. And my dad said to me, in, just on his deathbed pretty much, you know, I, I accepted it. This is, wasn't my country, the UK. I came here. Uh, you won't accept it because you were born and brought up here. Uh, dad never complained about it his entire life to me. It was only literally just before he died that I heard about all this stuff. But essentially the mentality is... How can we avoid our kids having to go through what we've gone through? Oh, if you get straight A's and you go to a great university and get a good job, you're going to have no problems in life, right? So little Rongen, when he comes home from school with 19 out of 20, I get asked by my parents, well, why didn't you get 20? Right, if I get 99%, why didn't you get 100%? If I came second in the class, well, who came top? You know, why, why weren't you top? And what's interesting as I was writing this book, because I outlined the story in it, I went round to mums. I said, hey mum, can I ask you, why did you, um, why did you and dad say that to me when I was little? And she said, well, we just know how capable you are and we wanted you to be the best that you could be. Now, for our happiness and contentment, I think perspective is a key thing to learn. That, we, that every situation has multiple perspectives and I believe that we can train ourselves in every situation in life to choose what I call the happiness perspective. But in that situation, mum and dad are doing it from a place of love. They want their little boy to grow up and be successful and happy. They think that's the path to it. The problem is, little Rongan takes on the idea at a young age that I'm only worth something. I'm only worthy of love. I'm only enough when I've got full marks, when I've been successful, when I've got straight A's. When you're winning. When I'm winning, right. So what, what happens? You develop a personality of being competitive. That makes complete sense, right? Because actually being competitive means you are gonna win a lot. And I did, and I was a straight A student, and I went to a top medical school, right? And at the moment, as we sit here, you know, people will look at me and go, I have ticked off the boxes of societal success. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I've had my own BBC One TV show, I have the most listened to health podcasts in Europe, Um, So this is now the fifth Sunday Times bestseller I've had in the last five years. Hey, it all looks great on the outside, right? But until a few years ago, I wasn't happy, I didn't feel content, I didn't feel happy, I didn't like the person I saw in the mirror, right? So I've had a very... um, I wasn't even aware of this And, and, and I tell the story in the book at the start of chapter three of playing pool on a Sunday afternoon in Edinburgh when I was at university. You know, you've been out on a Friday and Saturday nights, Sunday, unwinding with your mates, playing pool. And I remember if I was ever losing, right, against one of my mates, I'd go into the bathroom and I'd look at myself in the mirror, give myself a pep talk, give myself a little slap on the face, call myself a loser, come out. Almost certainly I would end up winning, not always, but usually. But over the last few years, I've realised I wasn't happy when I'd won. I was just delighted I hadn't lost because losing was too painful because I had the identity that winning is when I'm loved. Right, so actually there's a concept that I talk about called core happiness v. junk happiness. Right, core happiness is what I think every human being wants. Right, and it's got three components. But junk happiness, junk happiness are these, um, we've all got junk happiness habits that we turn to. To distract ourselves to um, to numb how we 're feeling well yeah, you know, it could be sugar, ice cream, gambling, um, you know online shopping, three hours on Instagram. these are distraction techniques because we don 't want to feel what we 're feeling even even if i 'd won the game of snooker right or the game of pool, you know you don 't feel good in yourself, so you 're probably going to have more sugar or more alcohol or more something later. These are downstream consequences of the way you feel about yourself, so I'm very passionate that I want to get this idea across to people that we confuse many of us success with happiness, right? They can overlap, but for many of us, they don't. For many of us, they're completely separate things. And we see this being played out over and over again in public, Right? I've just sort of briefly mentioned my story. Take someone like Johnny Wilkinson. I interviewed him a few weeks ago for my podcast, right? Johnny, one of the most successful rugby players of all time. Uh, for people around the world who may not be familiar with Johnny, in 2003, in the last minute of the World Cup final, he kicks the winning goal to give his country the World Cup, right? Now, Johnny is a prime example of what I call in the book, your dreams won't make you happy if you're not careful, right? When he was a kid, he wrote down, I want to play for England, I want to win the World Cup, right? Problem he has is by the age of 24, he's, done he's got his dreams. He says the minute the ball left his foot in the World Cup final, he started to go downward. He wakes up the next day feeling empty, lonely, depressed. He's had a huge struggle, even though he got success because that success didn't bring him happiness. And I see many of my patients falling into the same trap, right? They're trying to chase something, right? And while they're chasing it, they're neglecting everything that's truly important. That's why they're coming to see me with anxiety, with stress, with burnout, with insomnia, with gut problems, with low libido, whatever it is. And I'm not saying don't chase success, right? I'm just saying be very careful whilst you're chasing that success that you don't neglect the things that truly make you happy.
2: So talking of happiness, people are constantly telling us what we need to be happy. It seems to be the thing of the moment. And in your book, you talk about how happiness isn't the usual, you know, find your purpose, find your mission, all of these things that we always hear, but actually that there are three different values that we need to be looking at um, to find happiness. And two of them made a lot of sense to me, you know, having alignment in what you do, having contentment. I was surprised at control. Why control? Why do you feel this is needed?
0: What I was trying to do with this model of happiness is create something for people that was practical. That they can work on. Because I think happiness often feels like an unattainable goal, it's like a mirage. It's, it's one day just gonna appear for us when by fluke everything just seems to be going right. People treat us well, life's going well. And I've realized that happiness is a skill. It's a skill that we can practice, we can develop, we can work on it if we know what to work on. So my model of happiness is called happiness stool where there are three legs. As you say, I'm saying we can actually Work directly on these three legs alignment, contentment, and control. And when we do that with, with simple things that actually don't cost any money, right? They just got just quite a bit of time from us, a bit of a commitment to work on these things. The side effect is going to be that you feel happy. So you're not actually directly working on happiness, you're working on alignment, contentment, and control. And the side effect is happiness. So I see it more as a direction you choose to take in life rather than a destination. Now, When I was trying to create the model, I was trying to to create something that will hold true in every situation and is understandable by people. And it's interesting that you bring up control because I thought long and hard about this. Is this the right word or not? I had a few other options. Um, I went with control because uh, because when I was talking to patients, talking to friends, talking to the public, most people got it straight away. Now when I say control, I'm not talking about controlling the world and controlling external events. Right? That is a recipe for unhappiness. Right? The last few years have taught us <laughs> that the world is uncontrollable. Whatever you may want to happen, doesn't really matter. Things are going to happen the way that they happen. I'm talking about a sense of control. What are the things that you can do regularly or even on a daily basis that give you a sense of control over your life? Because we know from the research, people who have a sense of control, they have higher success, higher motivation. Uh, they earn more money. Right? Um, they have higher levels of what we call social maturity, they do better in exams, they do better in presentations, uh, they're happier, they live longer, right? so a sense of control is really important in the research and actually having a lack of control, if you, when you feel your life is out of control, we know that it vastly increases psychological stress, which is associated with all kinds of problems. Now, we mentioned a uh, morning routine earlier. right? One of the reasons why I think that's so awesome, and if you look at it through the lens of this core cool happiness stool, that works on the control leg, right? I know when I have my morning routine. Let's say it's only twenty minutes. I have my morning routine. I feel I've created um, like a little bubble of resilience around me. Right? I have nourished my mind, my body, my soul, and that means doesn't matter what's on the news doesn't matter how many emails I've got to reply to. doesn't matter what's going down at work, right? I've done something that I, that I can go into my life with that, resi- that bubble of resilience around me. So when I say control, I'm talking about a sense of control. And I want people to think about what are the things in your life that you could do that give you that sense of control. So I think it's really, really important. Well, give, give, give me some examples of, of, of real life examples of somebody
1: finding a sense of control.
0: So a routine would be something, for example, that gives you a sense of control. Um, another another way of looking at control is um, just to broaden it out, right, is what makes you feel in control of the world, right? So there's, there's a part of your brain that scientists call the sociometer, right? I, I love it. And basically, it's this network that is always scanning your external environment to see if it's safe, right? So you know, you've got one, I've got one, we've all got a human brain, this is what's going on, right? So for example, when you, there's a chapter in the book called Talk to Strangers, mm-hmm. right? Because it's really, really important. When you, let's say, I, I got a coffee just where I came here at the local coffee shop, right? So you walk in. If you say hi to that barista and just exchange a few pleasantries. Now, extroverts do this naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, introverts find it harder to do it. But the research shows that even extroverts and introverts, it doesn't matter what your starting point is. If you do this a bit more... You get all kinds of benefits in your life. So if you smile, say, hey, thanks so much for the coffee, how's your day going? And they smile and nod at you, that sends a message to your sociometer that, hey, my external world is safe. The social world around me is safe. That gives your brain a sense of control, right? So it's another way of looking at control. It's a broad theme. Yes, what can I do that gives me a sense of control, like let's say in my home life. But also when you're out interacting with the world, if your social world feels safe, that's one of the most powerful signals. So I think talking to strangers, like I've got, a, um, I've got two kids, right? My, my son is 11 at the moment. We like to go running together. And, you know, daddy's very chatty, right? So I'm always chatting to people or if we're running past people or, or, or you know, someone's coming the other direction, I will say, hey, how's it going? You know, and it's really interesting. My son's never really done that. Right? But, he, but he sees daddy doing it all the time. And I think it was in the first lockdown in the UK. or Maybe it was after that. Like, I can't remember when you were allowed in parks. Right, <laughs> I can't remember when that was. Um, we went for a little run. I remember this so well. I saw, my, my son was probably nine at the time. And someone was running towards us. And um, he said to him, uh, uh, the guy said to him, hi, how are you doing? He goes, yeah, good, thanks. Enjoy your run. Something like that. And then I saw him speed off, right? And I didn't say anything. At the end of our run, I said, oh, hey, darling, I noticed, um, you know, you, you said hi to that guy, didn't you? You know, and he said, yeah, Dad, it, daddy, it felt great, you know. And I said, what happened? How did you feel? He goes, yeah, I, I ran so much faster afterwards. And it, it's just a little moment. But uh, I talk about in the book. There's, a, there's something called vitamin S, the social vitamin. That is like taking a shot, right? Not of... Um, B12 or vitamin C, that's a shot of vitamin S, the social vitamin that helps us feel a sense of control about the world. And it's such a beautiful example of how it made him run faster. And I certainly hope as a dad that that hopefully is being infused in him, that's actually interacting with other people, that's a very, very important part for happiness.
2: And it's important right now because actually we do less of that than ever yeah. before because we're on our phones.
0: We, we do. it it's so important. And, and one thing, you know, I remember patients talking to me about early on uh, when there was all kinds of restrictions over the last couple of years, a lot of introverts thought, hey, I've been preparing my whole life for this, no problem, <laughs> right? But actually there was a problem. A lot of them would come and say, you know what? I thought I liked being by myself, but I'd often take myself off to a coffee shop and I'd work on my laptop and I'd, I'd keep myself to myself, but I, but I actually realized I liked the the humdrum of human life and people chatting around me. Right, We are social animals. We are wired for connection. I'm I'm coming to the point now, you know, almost 21 years in to being a medical doctor, having seen tens of thousands of patients, I'm really coming around to the belief that human connection, socially connecting with others, may actually be more important than uh, diet. And things like movement. I, I really do. I think when we don't have that social connection, we feel out of control. We damage one of the three legs of the core happiness stool, and it's really toxic. And we know from the research that people who feel lonely and isolated—that's as harmful for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. What are you say about it, that. Say that again. Uh, lonely. Feeling lonely. Yeah. Right. The feeling of feeling um, feeling isolated and lonely. Yeah. One, what we call the meta-analysis, it's a sort of research where they look at multiple studies is showing us that it, it's as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes per day, right? Now, I, I read that three or four years ago, and that blew my mind, and let's think about that. Can I explain why that well, might be? Go, please, I yeah. wanna know. Right? So it all comes down to our stress response, right? Imagine 500,000 years ago, right? You're a human in your little tribe, and you hunt together a tribe in your community, right? The stress response is there to keep you safe right so if a i 't know if a wild predator is approaching uh, a lion is coming someone sees it right everyone 's stress response gets activated straight away right so what happens? your blood pressure goes up um, uh, your blood sugar goes up so more uh, more um, fuel can get to your brain your blood becomes more prone to clotting in case you were to get uh, attacked and, and you were cut instead of you bleeding to death your blood 's going to clot right' Uh, your emotional brain, what's called your amygdala, goes on to high alert. So you are hyper vigilant to all the threats around you, right? That's a good thing when you really are in danger. That helps keep you safe. Now, one of the problems in modern life is that, um, is that our stress responses have been activated not by wild predators, by, by our daily lives, by our email inboxes, by our to do lists. For many of us, That is activating our stress responses in exactly the same way, which is why those things that are helpful in the short term, so you can run away from that lion, they're damaging in the long term and they they cause anxiety, they cause depression, um, they cause heart disease, they cause uh, all kinds of problems, right? Now, how does loneliness fit in there? Well, it's the same thing. If your body feels as though you're lonely, it thinks you don't have your tribe around you. Your body's very clever. It thinks that you're vulnerable to attack. So it's like it's trying to protect you. Ah, if I get attacked or there's a threat there, I don't have my crew around me to help me. So I'm going to activate my stress response to help me, Mm -hmm. right? So your body's trying to help you. And when we think about isolation and loneliness, right? Oh, you know, we often think about all the elderly living by themselves. One of the loneliest groups in society in the UK and in the US, young men, between the ages of 30 and 50, are some of the loneliest in society. And there's very high depression rates, very high suicide rates. Um, I mean, this might resonate with, with, with your audience, Lisa and Spencer. Um, I had this patient a few years ago, 37-year-old chap called Stuart. Right? On the outside, it looks as though he's crushing life, right? runs his own business, drives a sports car. Um, working at the weekends on his own terms. You yeah, know, looked great. He came in to see me and he said, Dr. Well, Chatterjee, look, I'm, I'm really worried. Like, I think I've got depression. Sometimes I can't motivate myself to get out of bed. I feel indifferent about things. I sometimes just lie there thinking um, I can feel low. Is this depression? Do I need medication? And I spoke to him, I did some tests. Everything came back normal. And as I got to know him a bit better, it was quite clear to me that he never saw his friends. Now, he was quite lucky he lived somewhere where all his friends lived. And I asked him, he goes, well, I kind of see what they're up to on Instagram, Facebook, you know. And that's the irony about the modern world where we can see what what our friends are eating, where they've been on holiday, what they're doing with their kids, but we don't actually see them. And I just felt this was a big thing for him. And I said, hey, look, what I'd love you to do for the next few weeks is once a week, I want you to meet up with one of your friends in person And when you're with them, I want you to put your phone away. Now, I totally appreciate it It wasn't the prescription he was expecting (laughs) from his doctor, but he was feeling pretty desperate. He went away, right? Six weeks later, he almost bounces into my room with a smile on his face. I said, how you doing? He goes, I feel great. I've got my mojo back. Everything had changed in six weeks. I said, what did you do? Well, I started off on a Sunday morning. I started to meet one of my friends in the local cafe. We chew the fat over a coffee. And then after a few weeks, we decided, why don't we get together on a Wednesday evening and play five-a-side with the guys, right? I'm not kidding you. In six weeks, the guy completely changed. And I saw him for, for, for months after that. He didn't go back. He didn't have an antidepressant deficiency in his, in his body, right? He had a connection deficiency. And
2: that was the only thing that was That was the only
0: thing I did wow. with him. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that happens in every case. There are multiple causes of depression, right? The only way we're gonna really help people is by trying to find out what is the cause for them. And often there's multiple causes. For him, it, it, that was the only thing he changed, but, right, there was a ripple effect over the next few months, right? Because he felt low previously, and he was stuck at home all the time, and he, you know, he would often stay up late, binge watching box sets, he'd get less sleep. By seeing his friends and opening up and playing five sides. Not only does his mood feel better, he starts to make better decisions. After a few months, he wanted to look after himself better because he was knackered playing five-a-side, right? So that was the one change. And here's the irony. His friends thought he was fine. Yeah, they didn't know. They didn't know. They thought, hey, Stuart's crushing it. Man, he doesn't have time for us, right? And that's where there's a chapter in the book called, chapter eight is called Have Massless Conversations. And I talk about why it's so important and I think guys probably need this advice more than women. Not, of course, that's not across the boards, but and this is a bit of a cliche, and I can only go on my experience and what I've seen in clinic and, and with my patients, but often, and I was guilty of this for many years, you kind of neglect your friends. You're so busy following your dream, what you think's your dream, You know, trying to be more successful, do this. And when we can truly reveal ourselves to other people, and usually it's our best mates, or our family, or your partner, where you can actually be yourself, take off these what I call figurative masks that we often wear to not show who we really are, when you can actually be yourself and say, hey guys, you know, life's pretty crap at the moment, you know, I'm really struggling. When you reveal yourself to other people, you start to understand yourself better. So many of us are living isolated lives. We don't know how we feel and how we think because we're not being vulnerable. We're not being honest and opening up. And, you know, I think that's a very powerful story. And I can almost guarantee that there's someone, Spencer, someone, Lisa, who is listening to this right now, who is in that boat, Mm -hmm. and they've just connected with that story. And I really hope that's the stimulus of them to go, you know what, maybe I need to text one of my mates and get together. I,
1: I, rongan went through an experience like this myself. So as you talk, I'm just thinking about my own journey. And... In 2012, I was, I was part of a big community of people. So uh, uh, that, that guy that worked all of the hours that God sends, that, that was me. And, and living overseas, the people you work with become your family. Yeah. And so I've got this family of 150 people. Some of them I'm really close to, but every one of them I know. Every Friday night, I'm with them. Every Tuesday night for football, I'm with them. The weekends, I'm with them. And then that stops, literally overnight. Yeah. And it took me probably four or five weeks to fall into a really significant depression.
2: Yeah. Which isn't long.
1: No. It's not long. But, but I, I, I'd taken gardening leave for a year. Yeah. So the company had paid me not to work for a year. And, and I was like, do you know, that's what a great idea that is. I'll go and catch up with all my friends. And I went to France to see a friend of mine that's got a cookery school and I yeah. spent a couple of weeks with him and then I spent some time with my mum and dad and whatnot. Then after I was like, what do I do with my life now? I had 11 months of nothing. And I couldn't spend time with these people I was with before because they weren't allowed to talk to me.
2: Yes. You'd think you would like that 11 months because it's like all the things that horrific. you can
1: do it. It was horrific. And I felt so, I started to feel low, but then I did exactly what people shouldn't do, which as I started, it's like a, a, a spiral, isn't it? Because you, not only do you start to feel low, you then start to push people away. Yeah. Okay, subconsciously, you just you don't want to be around anyone. There's maybe the shame attached to it and, you know, and bad feelings, so you just push further away. And that creates a bigger and bigger void. Yeah. And so it then leads to a, a real darkness, like a darkness of, of, of despair, but also a real calm around why you shouldn't live anymore. Yeah, it, is, you know, it, it doesn't take long. No, and I was, I was probably seven weeks into that journey when I was ready to jump off a building. And like planning, I flew back to London to say goodbye to my kids, to, to literally jump off a bit. I was clear. But I wasn't, oh, I'm in a mess, I'm in a mess. It was just like, no, you know, there's no point me yeah. being here anymore, I have no value to anyone, and you know, life's shit, so I might as well just go. My kids have got enough money, so they'll be fine. And i justified everything really calmly. And so this is why what you talk about is really important to me. Because finding true happiness is, is really important for all of us and it's done in different ways and, you know, if someone says to me, what's, what's your favourite thing to do? Well, do you, you could choose to spend your time doing anything. Um, I, I love Formula One, okay? And I've got friends in Formula One and I love spending time with them and I love being at the racetrack, so I love doing that. But as you were talking just now, I'm sitting thinking about this week, making time for your friends. My best friend's Graham, okay? And Graham and I have been talking for the week before I came here and since I've arrived, about how we're gonna to get to see each other, and he's got kids doing various stuff at the moment, and we might not be able to yeah. see each other. Two weeks ago, he was on holiday for Easter with his kids in Dubai. <laughs> I couldn't see him. Literally, yes. there wasn't a single day week of me. And and I know, if I go and spend the evening with Graham, I always have an amazing time, I have a really great connection, we're really open, that mask is yeah, gone. the mask on. I'm just me. Exactly. And the next day I wake up full of full of by my social vitamins. Yeah.
0: yeah. It, I mean, first of all, I appreciate you sharing that, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear it, it, it got that bad. Um, but speaking to what you said, Lisa, what, in just six weeks? Yeah, the ripple effect works both ways, right? Start making a few positive changes and you will, it will ripple out into other areas of your life. Start to go down the other way, that ripple effect will actually take you, in some sometimes to a very, very dark place. And the sense of community, right? It's so important, right? So much of the world now is individualistic. You know, what can I do to optimise? Yeah, you know, I can optimise my health. Hey, I've been guilty of that as well, right? I, I'm, I'm currently in the middle of a, a UK tour to promote the new book, right? And I've just done two dates in London. And at every date pretty much as I go around the country, I'm not doing a huge one. Why? Because I, you know, I don't want to leave my wife and kids for that long, right? I've decided, no, I'm passionate about my work, but I'm going to do Seven dates, that is it. Uh, yes, there's demand to do more, but, but I don't want to be away. Yeah. So I, I feel like I've taken control, but at every, like in a few weeks I'm in Edinburgh, I, went to, I was at uni there, some of my best mates live there, and there's other opportunities. And I said, no, you know what, Rangan? You are going to meet your mates, right? So I'm going up a bit early, we're going to spend two hours together before the event in the evening. I'm not getting the train home the next morning. I'm staying there, we're going to go for a, a walk together, hang out, have lunch, and then I'm coming home. And I thought, Rangan, you must do this. You will see your, some of your best buddies. I'm doing this in Bristol in two weeks. I'm staying with one of my mates. I'm not staying in the hotel. Yeah, would it be easier potentially staying stay in the hotel and then get off the next morning to learn it? Yeah. But I thought that ease, there's a, there's a bit in the book where I, where I call it, there's a cost to convenience, right? In many aspects of our life, there's a cost. And I decided that seeing my friends will nourish me so much more. And these, the mates I'm talking about, are like you said, the ones where I can rock up, they're not interested in the fact that Wrong is quite well known now and he's got all this. Earth. I knew these guys when I was 18 and we were just having a laugh and going out scattering and, and making our way, right? Yeah. It's, it's so important. And there's, you know, just to, again, to really bring it home to people, there, there's a case I write about in the book. This, this guy is in his 20s. I know this is quite a controversial topic for people. They don't like discussing it. But online pornography mm-hmm. is a massive, massive problem, mm-hmm. right? No one's talking about it. Right, and I, I I have so many patients who come to see me, young men and young women. I'll say, come in in their twenties, right, and older. They're addicted. They cannot stop. Right, and there was one guy I remember in particular. He came in. He could barely look me in the eye. This is a junk happiness habit, right? This is what's talking about core happiness and junk happiness. This is a classic junk happiness habit which attacks all three legs of that core happiness stool, right, and the point I'm trying to make is, he was so embarrassed, he was ashamed of himself, he couldn't look at me, and I was trying to help the guy and really trying to understand what was going on. This guy was isolated, he didn't have community, he didn't have any purpose in life, right? And I was trying to come up with various options for him. And uh, the one thing that sparked a twinkle in his eye was when I mentioned boxing, right? He goes, yeah, yeah, I thought it was quite fancied that. Anyway, we got him hooked up with a local boxing club. Never done anything like this before, literally change his life, right? He suddenly had a tribe, a sense of community. I remember him coming in once and saying, you know what? Outside a boxing gym, I've never really worked out. I never managed to do anything. But in a boxing gym, 10 press-ups means 10 press-ups, right? And there's a community around him. Literally, over the next few months, he stopped all online pornography, right? He stopped using. He tried before with willpower. It didn't work. A lot of us we try and change our behaviors without understanding why is the behavior there. This is why I think a lot of public health guidance just doesn't work. We say, don't drink more than 14 units of alcohol a week, right, it's too dry, it's not connecting with people. Why is that person needing to, right? Is there a relationship problem? Is there too much stress? If you don't find a way of dealing with that root cause, the behavior ain't gonna go. It's gonna go for three weeks in January with the motivation and the motivation goes, you're straight back into that behavior. For this young man, Online pornography was not the problem. It was a symptom of the problem, right? I didn't want to tackle that. Let's go to the root cause. He was missing contentment, a sense of control, alignment, right? He didn't want to be the kind of guy who was in his bedroom using online pornography. That's the truth. That wasn't aligned with who he was. He couldn't look at me, right? And wow. I want people to you know, not get triggered by online pornography. It could be sugar. It could be spending three hours on Instagram. It could be gambling, right? Um, whatever you want, these are all junk happiness habits. Don't get seduced by looking at the habit. Go upstream. Why are you needing it? That's where the gold is. And that's, you know, that's kind of why I wrote this book, is trying to help people understand what is really driving your behaviours. How does, how does Viktor
1: Frankl's work uh, and, he, and his book influence your thinking?
0: It's huge. And, and for me, you say Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz, right? Yeah. I've, I've never had the, the pleasure of talking to him, right? Um, but I have had the pleasure of talking to someone called Dr. Edith Eager, mm-hmm. who was also in Auschwitz.
2: He's amazing.
0: It really is. And I remember when I, when I spoke to her for my podcast a couple of years ago, that was, you know, I was asked at the live event last night in a and a but someone said to me, if you could delete all your podcasts except one, which would it be? Well, great and I, question. And I said, there's four or five that have come up, came up immediately, but I said, it'd have to be my conversation with Edith Eager. I was not the same person after that conversation as I was before it. And, you know, 93-year-old lady, when I spoke to her, I've never spoken to someone with more warmth, compassion, empathy, forgiveness, absolutely incredible. When she was 16 years old, right, she was living in Eastern Europe with her sister and her parents. They get a knock on the door. Um, They get taken to Auschwitz concentration camp. She'd never heard of Auschwitz at the time, Mm -hmm. right? They get there. Within two hours of getting there, her parents are murdered, Mm -hmm. right? She gets asked that day to dance for the prison guards. And, you know, there's so many things from that conversation that I think about all the time. But one of the things that she said to me wrong, and I never forgot the last thing that my mum said to me, Edie, nobody can ever take from you the contents that you put inside your mind. So she said, when I was dancing, I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. In my head, I was in Budapest Opera House. I was dancing with a peaceful dress on in front of an orchestra. Uh, There was a full house there. I thought, this is pretty incredible. Then she says to me, "Um, when I was in Auschwitz, I started to see the prison guards as the prisoners. They weren't free in their minds, right? I was free. I thought, this is pretty incredible. In the absolute hell of Auschwitz, she's reframing situations. But, but the words which are imprinted into my soul were what she said to me towards the end, which is wrong. And I have lived in Auschwitz, and I can tell you this, the greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your mind. That's what we all do every day. We create these fictional narratives. We allow the person who cut us up on the roads to ruin our day. Oh man, I can't believe that guy. Shouldn't be driving. You know, Did they not see me there? This is all, I've done that for much of my life. I don't anymore. right? I don't anymore. I've trained myself to not. Because once you start taking that disempowering narrative, you create emotional stress in your body. That emotional stress, A, it causes physical health problems, but it has to be neutralized. It's not neutral. You have to do something with it. That could be Diving into the Ben and Jerry's later, that could be four or five beers after work instead of one beer. That could be whatever, right? And so training yourself to not get emotionally triggered, you make better decisions and it's not as hard as we think, right? It really isn't. And my favorite chapter in this book is chapter five, which is called Seek Out Friction. And I'm basically saying, work out in the social gym every day, right? Every time you go through some, what I call, social friction. Someone does something that bothers you. An email that you don't like, reframe it, right? Um, someone cuts you up on the road, reframe it. What could be going on? Oh, that driver, you know, maybe his wife is really ill at the moment and he's just rushing out to get something. Maybe his daughter had an earrate last night and he's really worried. Whatever you have to do, because actually, it doesn't matter what story you take, but if you choose that, what I say, happiness story, you feel much better you will make better choices when it comes to your happiness i would say the truth of the situation actually doesn't matter and i think for many people that's a bit controversial right so let me just explain what i mean but hold on a minute we do that with our kids all the time in with terms of what the the truth yeah because father christmas and the tooth fairy yeah. or whatever it might be all yeah. of that. none of that's real but none of it's true but it's from... it's, it's all comes out of perspective right of the perspective my mum and dad want me to be the best I can be. So from their position, it's a place of love, right? We're helping Rongen to be the best that he can be. Other side of the table, little Rongen takes on the belief that I'm not enough unless I do really well in life, right? A couple, let's take like a, um, I don't know, married couple or non-married couple, doesn't matter, a couple who are having a fight or, or a disagreement. What happened? Well, it kind of depends who you ask, yeah. right? You ask one party, they'll give you, a report of what just happened, walk round to the other side of the table, often it's a completely different take on the same situation. Psychologists did this with football fans. They take football fans, right? And they show them an incident that happened in the game. And they ask both sets of fans, what happened? Two completely different reports of the same situation, right? So what does that teach us? It teaches us that every situation has multiple perspectives, right? If you can train yourself to take what I call the happiness perspective, right? You will find that your life changes. I do this every day. Anytime I get socially triggered and it happens very much. It does still happen, but it's very rare these days. And it usually happens now when I'm underslept and I'm working too hard. That's when I find myself falling into old patterns. But usually now I've got to the point now where I can reframe it straight away. So the bits of Frankl phrase between stress and a response, that space, mm-hmm. that space used to be non-existent for me. there was no space. Stressor comes in, boom, I react. I've trained myself now where that I feel like that space is like minutes, like maybe I feel like I've got five minutes to choose my response, whereas in the reality, I've got seconds. And I honestly believe this is one of the most important skills you will learn in life. Yes, for your happiness, but also if you want to be successful in business, right? You want to be productive. Hey, if you if you can train yourself to not get emotionally triggered by problems, by the way your team are emailing you, by uh, a client, the way a client is, you know, just see it for what it is. Take yourself out of the, the emotional cauldron. And if you think you can't, right, I, you know, or this is a tricky situation that can't be reframed, just think about Edith Eager. Hmm. Just think about Edith Eager, right? And whenever I'm struggling, I think, wrong. And you know what? If Edith can reframe this in Auschwitz, I'm pretty sure for most of the problems in my life, mm-hmm. I can reframe them. It's such a powerful, powerful tool. And, if, you know, the, the idea I, I, I sort of, I try and promote in the book is I say, guys, find a way to make that person a hero. Find a way in your head to make them a hero.
2: Imagine if we all did that, how different social media would be. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think one in of the reasons... I, think, I doing... think one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this is... You know, Having a public profile in the current um, day and age, you know with social media you 're exposing yourself to opinions about okay. yourself constantly you know ever since my primetime BBC One show in two thousand and fifteen, which you know went out in the u k to five million people each week where i 'm basically trying to help people get better, you know you get opinions I can from imagine. people <laughs> and i wasn 't i don 't think very emotionally mature back then, so I used to be really bothered i, I couldn 't understand like i 've just helped all these families get better, whether it 's type 2 diabetes, whether it 's depression, fibromyalgia, panic attacks whatever i 've helped them in six weeks using nutrition and lifestyle, not using any medications. I thought, well, why are some people the minority, why are they saying nasty things so like but that was because I felt insecure in who I was because what i 've learned is when you truly feel secure in who you are, when you truly like the person that you see in the mirror actually. The negative comments from other people don't bother you. Mm -hmm. And the positive comments don't artificially elevate your ego either. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more stable and grounded. I really feel I'm at that place now where most of the time, I'm not perfect, but most of the time, actually, I know that I like the person who I am. I am enough in who I am. I don't need the success to make me feel good. It's really interesting. We're having this conversation four weeks after this, uh, after my new book has come out. It's my fifth book in five years. And now I'm very lucky that first four have been very, very successful. But this book, I had really made peace before it came out. Like, I honestly said to my mates, I said, you know what? I know this is a great book. I said, not with any arrogance. Like, I know this is the yeah. best thing I can do at this moment in time. I know it's going to help people. Whether anyone buys it or not, doesn't change the fact that this is a great book. It doesn't say anything about who I am. And I, I'd let go of the need for this to be successful. It just so happens that it's been the number one paperback for the last three weeks, right? On the Sunday Times, list. it's it's really being my most successful launch that I've ever had. And then I think there's something, you know, I'm getting a bit more spiritual as I get older, right? I think there's something in that where you're saying, I'd let go of the need for this to be successful. Yeah. <laughs> And it's actually now being even more successful. And and, you know, (laughs) it does, doesn't it? You know, I think I don't need it to. It says nothing about my worth as a human being. And I think going back to success v. happiness, I am happy, I'm content in who I am. Like I'm very happily married. Uh, I've got two kids uh, who I, I love my family. I love what I get to do in my job. Yeah, sometimes I overwork, right? And I'm trying to address that. I'm trying to, you know, recalibrate. But it's nice to have the success, yeah. but it doesn't, it doesn't say anything about who I am. Whereas I think a few years ago, like I think it did, which is why I think I actually, un, deep down, was, was pretty unhappy. Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. I always appreciate being invited on the show, so um, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Salise,
1: what did you think of Dr Rongan?
2: I think he's amazing. I could have listened to him all day. I barely spoke because I just wanted to hear what he said. He was so, so good.
1: But actionable tips, you know, strategies, stuff that we don't think about, we take for granted, we, we bury and stuff like that. Just, just that brings it to the forefront and allows us to understand better.
2: And all of it being relatable. Like there's every story he tells you think, yeah, I know somebody like that. Or it's yourself. Um, It was amazing. I loved, loved the whole conversation.
1: Mm, Fantastic stuff. Look, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as well. If you're listening to this on iTunes, give us a five-star rating, please. And if you're listening on any other podcast app, some love, some feedback, some engagement. Tell me I'm rubbish. Tell me who you want on this show. I don't mind. Let us know what you feel about the show that we produce.